Just to kind of uh, remind you of what we talked about on Sunday. Psalm 84. This is something, uh, as a lost man and as an unsurrendered man as well, I heard a lot of people paraphrase this verse from time to time. Psalm uh, 84.10. The Bible says, For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now, the way I heard it said over and over again is, hey, you know, I'm just so grateful I'm saved. I don't care if I'm a a janitor in heaven, right? And uh, that's kind of a cop-out because, you know, chances are God doesn't want you to be a janitor in heaven. Now, he may, but that's between you and him. But uh, this isn't a contrast, by the way, between... uh, a saved person and a surrendered person. It's a contrast between a saved person and a lost person. Okay, look in Psalm 25. point I'm trying to make here before we get started is that uh, God created you for a reason, uh, probably a lot of reasons. And uh, you might have missed out on doing some of those things that he wanted you to do already, but there's still a lot of opportunity left. And he's a merciful God. Psalm 25, verse 2. Oh, my God. That's where that OMG comes from. Uh, OMG, you know, that's a word now in Webster's Dictionary. OMG. It says, Oh, my God, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Here's what I want to tell you, uh, and what the scriptures are really telling us is that If you're saved, if you're a child of God, God has got a lot of battles for you. Now, we know the end of the story. We know in the end we're victorious, right? But there's a lot of battles between now and then. And God wants you to be victorious in those battles. He will empower you to be victorious in those battles if you will just kind of surrender a little bit of your time and your attention to him. Oh, my God, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed. He doesn't want you to be ashamed when you go through those battles. He wants you to be victorious. And he wants to get glory from those individual battles that he puts you through. Well, I got some good news and bad news, I guess. The good news is my message is very short tonight. And uh, the bad news is I'm going to preach two messages. Okay? It's the second one that's real short. What I want to do, I want to take this one lump of clay, and out of it I'm going to make five separate pieces, and then I'm going to assemble those pieces And I'm going to create what I consider uh, maybe not the most difficult thing a potter makes, but maybe the most expressive piece of functional pottery that a potter can make, and that's a teapot. And uh, I got a great message. It's not a very long message about the teapot, and it really helps you give you a visual of that message. But while I'm making the teapot, I don't want you to sit here and look at me, so I got another message, and I want to talk about these words the words of God, and some of the powerful effects of those words, okay? Do you realize that in Psalm 12, 6, and 7, the Bible says, the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. 
Thou shalt keep them, what? Those words. Thou shalt preserve them, those words, from this generation forever. God didn't promise to preserve his teachings or his fundamentals or his precepts or his commandments, which you would think that's what he'd want to preserve. He was smarter than that. He said, I'm going to preserve my very words, those individual words, and if he preserves all 790-some thousand, however many it is, in order, you're going to get every teaching, every fundamental, every precept, every commandment that he wants you to have. Folks, if you're using a King James Bible, you have got the very preserved, pure, inspired words of God. There's not a word uh, that we need to have that isn't in there. There's not one of them missing. We've got everything we need right in those words. So I want to talk about those words and some of their powerful effects. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, Lord, I thank you for the day you've given us. Lord, as we look into your book tonight, I pray that uh, you'd help us to really, uh, maybe for the first time, appreciate in a new way the power that those words contain, Lord. And then with understanding that, I pray that you'd help us to use the information we glean from those words to come together in a unified fashion to do something special for you in this part of Ohio, Lord. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to talk about uh, the powerful effects of these words, and the first thing I'm going to do is give us a little history lesson. And you can stay in the book of Psalms. We'll get back there in a minute. But the first thing I want to say about those words, and I'm going to bounce back and forth between telling you what I'm doing up here. First thing I'm going to do is make the handle for the teapot. Potters don't usually make the handle on the wheel, but there's no reason we can't, so I'm going to do it. Um, the words are convicting. And when I say they're convicting, that means that they make us conscious, they make us conscious of our guilt. They can be convicting. That's why they said that uh, in Hebrews, I think it's 4.12, said those words of God are a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. When you're reading those words, if you're doing it with a humble heart and allowing them to convict you, they'll do just that. And they'll bring to your conscious mind some of that maybe unconfessed, unrepented sin. And maybe that's why we don't like reading them so much. Because though you can fool your heart, it's deceitful above all things, but uh, you cannot fool the words in that book. So these words are very convicting. I want to talk about that in light of these three kings up here on the, the board. And those kings are Manasseh, Ammon, and Josiah. And alongside of their names, you can see a little color-coded bar. That's not their lifeline. That is the length of their reign as one of the kings of Judah. For example, Manasseh has a very long bar next to his name, and he has the distinction of having the longest reign of any of the kings of Judah. It's, uh, it was 55 years. Unfortunately, Ammon has, or excuse me, Manasseh has another distinction as well, and that's the distinction of being one of the most wicked kings that ever ruled. And why does the Bible say that about him? It says that uh, during his reign, as I begin to make the spout here, during his reign that he consulted uh, wizards, he used witchcraft and enchantments, he allowed other people to worship false gods. The Bible says that Manasseh himself built altars in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And then he himself set a carved image, an idol that he made, he set that in the house of God. God was not pleased with King Manasseh. Well, Manasseh had a son, his name was Ammon, 
you can see he had a very short reign. It was only two years long. And, of course, he followed in his father's footsteps. That's the path of least resistance. That's the easiest course of action for any of us. Uh, but then came along Josiah. And, you know, the Bible had a little different something to say about him. It said this, There was no king like unto him before him or after him, speaking of Josiah, that turned to the Lord his God with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might. Sounds a lot like uh, what Jesus Christ answered when he was asked, what's the first and great commandment? And that's to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. Now, what was it about Josiah? Well, when he was uh, very uh, young in his reign, I guess you could say, he actually uh, began to repair the temple that his grandfather and father had let get into disrepair. And what Josiah found out, well, someone that was kind of fixing up the temple, they came across a copy of the law, the Bible that they had at that time. And this was a, some scribe that uncovered it, and he read it, and he said, this is important, the king needs to know about this. And he took it to King Josiah and read the law to him. And Josiah was convicted by that law. He realized what he had found out is that the, the, the country that he ruled over, they were very disobedient. I'm going to make the lid for this teapot. They were very disobedient to that law, and he knew that they would be under the wrath of God because of that. So he, uh, he thought it was very important. He had every single person under his domain, uh, he assembled them publicly and had that book read to them so they could all hear what it had to say. Virtually a great revival took place, all because of the convicting power of those words. You know what Josiah did? He said he made a covenant to keep the words of the law and to perform them. He got that because of the convicting power of those words. Let me give you another example of that convicting power. You might say, I wonder what it was that made Josiah so different from his father and grandfather. Well, I don't know, but I tell you this, if you want to find out about any of these Bible characters, you need to scour the scriptures and find out everything you can about what's said about them. And that's what I did. There's not a whole lot said about them, but I did uncover a few interesting things, and it kind of gives me a theory about what might have happened. For example... I found out when these guys actually took their reign. And I found out that Josiah was only eight years old when he began his reign. So if we put his date of birth back in here, kind of finish, now we've got not just the length of his reign, but his entire lifeline. Ammon, on the other hand, was 22 years old uh, when he began his reign. So he was like that. Now, you can either do the math or visually you can see what's going on here. What I'm getting at is that Manasseh was alive for the first six years of Josiah's life. What's that got to do with anything? Well, I found this out, too. There was a point in Manasseh's reign, somewhere in here, that it said that Manasseh humbled himself greatly. I think he was in affliction. The Bible says, when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly. And my theory is that if Manasseh kind of got right, right there, he started to do some things, he didn't go all the way, but I bet, I just bet, 
that he started to pray for his son and his grandson. Now you say, well, if that's true, then what happened to Ammon? Well, Ammon was 22 years old when he began his reign. He saw his father's wickedness and hypocrisy for 22 years. So he took that path of least resistance. Josiah was only six years old when his grandfather died. He didn't realize maybe how wicked and evil he was. Even his, you know, even he, uh, he only lived a short, seen that six years of his father as well. So my point is this. Grandparents, I'm sure there's grandparents in here, and parents. Prayer is important, and it's powerful. And we don't realize, uh, a famous preacher once said that when we get to heaven, maybe the second most uh, surprising thing we're going to find out is the smallness of our prayer life. Probably the second biggest regret, I think that's what he was saying. He said the biggest surprise is going to be when we find out the motives for the service we've done. And that's all about preparing for the judgment seat of Christ, knowing that you're going to be tried for your works as to what motive they were done with. Anybody remember who Manasseh's father was? Hezekiah. You know, he was a really good king. And then uh, Josiah's son that took over for him, he had one that only lasted about two or three months. But then the main son that took over for him was Jehoiakim. And this guy was maybe almost as bad as Manasseh. He's the one, and if you read Jeremiah chapter 36, he's the one that uh, one of the scribes was reading some of the law to him, and he had that scribe cut those pages off with a penknife and cast them in the fire. God was a little upset with Jehoiakim, And if you look in Matthew uh, chapter 1, verse 11, it talks about the genealogy that Jesus Christ came through, the messianic line, and that's these guys right here. And it does mention Hezekiah and Manasseh and Ammon and Josiah, and then it skips right over Jehoiakim, just as though he never existed. Folks, the other thing I want you to be aware of, I know there's not any really young people in here right now, but for young people regardless if you're in your 30s or 40s or 50s, you're young to me, your salvation has got nothing to do with your parents or grandparents. I came from a family of, you know, my dad is still lost. My sister and brother are still lost. My mother got saved uh, just weeks before she died, about four years ago. I don't care how good your parents are, that's got nothing to do with you. I don't care how bad your parents are, that's got nothing to do with you. Salvation is an individual thing. I hope you remember a time in your life when you were under conviction. Convicted by the fact that you knew you were a sinner on your way to hell and that you needed a Savior and that's one of the reasons you cried out and asked the Lord to save your soul. The words of God, they're very convicting. Let me give you another example. At Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching to the very people that had just crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. And all he did was preach these convicting words in our Bible. And you know what happened? The Bible says upwards of 3,000 souls got saved. Why? Because of the convicting power of those words. Let me give you maybe the best example. Jesus Christ himself in John chapter 8, he's confronted the, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees bring to Christ this woman who's been caught in the very act of adultery. And uh, the 
the scribes and Pharisees come up to Moses or to, to Jesus and say, you know, Moses in the law says that this woman should be stoned. What sayest thou? Well, Jesus Christ just kind of ignores him, but he bends down and writes something in the ground. The Bible doesn't say what he wrote. Uh, and they persisted. He didn't say anything, so they asked him again. He said, Moses in the law says that she should be stoned. What sayest thou? This time Jesus Christ says something uh, to the effect, let him that is without sin first cast a stone at her. And then he bent down and, and wrote something in the ground. Now, in my book, if Jesus Christ writes something in the ground, that's scripture. I don't know what he wrote. Again, I, I have my own theory. He might have written something from Deuteronomy chapter 22 or Leviticus chapter 20. Those are the two places in the law, in the, in the Old Testament, where the Bible describes the penalty for people caught in the act of adultery. But you get the point? There's only one person. Both, the law says that both persons are to be stoned to death. They only brought him the woman. Where was the man? I don't know. Now, whether it was what he said or what he wrote or both, the Bible says that one by one, those accusers were convicted by their own conscience. And then one by one, they left till there was none left to accuse her. Now, they were convicted in their own conscience, but that conscience was convicted by those words, what Jesus said or what he spoke. Okay, I'm going to make the body for the teapot. Uh, this is where I want you in the book of Psalm, this time Psalm 119. If you're new to your Bible, you're not familiar with your Bible, this Psalm 119, that's the longest chapter in the entire Bible. And I think there's 176 verses in it, and I think there's 180 times it's referred to the words of God. It calls them statutes, precepts, commandments, and the words, of course. So that is the greatest chapter about the power of these words of God. Now I'm going to take a little liberty here, and I want to, because the Bible itself describes those, its own words as it likens them oftentimes to a mirror or a lamp or a fire or a hammer or a sword, all kinds of things that we eat, milk, bread, honey, apples, water, on and on. I'm going to take a little liberty and liken those words of God because I want to talk about their correcting power, and I want to liken them to this wooden ruler in two different ways. Number one, if you're asked to write a, draw a line, let's say, four and a quarter inches long, exactly, don't you need a standard to go by? This is our standard. It gives us the correct measurement. Now, if you're asked a spiritual question, a doctrinal question, don't you need a standard to go by? If you're asked, uh, why should I get saved? How do I get saved? Is there something I have to do to stay saved? The answers are in this book. But it's more than just that. It's, should I take this job? Should I marry this person? Should I join this church? I mean, if you know what this Bible has to say, it will give you light on every single decision you are faced with throughout your day. That's how powerful it is. It's our correct standard. In Bible-believing circles, we oftentimes say that the King James Bible is our a final authority for all matters of faith and practice. And I guess you could just simply say, it's our final authority, period. It is. It is. Take advantage of the power of those words and allow them to be your final authority. 
So, number one, uh, it's like a wooden ruler because it's a correct standard. We get that standard from the Bible, get a correct standard from this wooden ruler. But this wooden ruler corrects in another way. And when I was in school, this was a corrective measuring thing. You know? They didn't have Ritalin when I went to grade school. They had this. And if they had this today, they wouldn't need the drugs because this will correct your behavior. A little swat on the behind or the knuckles, and yeah, it changes your behavior right away. What about spiritually? What about our behavior? That book will change it. Look in Psalm 119, verse 71. Those words are correcting. It says in Psalm 119, verse 71, it is good for me that I have been afflicted that I might learn thy statutes. Now, why would the Bible say that? Look in verse 67. Verse 67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. Folks, that's part of my personal testimony. That's like written about me. That's exactly, you know, in the year 2003, you know, I'd had a Bible a long time. I was never reading it. I didn't know what was in it. And God really afflicted me. That's how he got my attention. And it drew me close to him. You know, what's more, look in verse 75. I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right and that thou in faithfulness hath afflicted me. Folks, when you get afflicted, when you're going through an affliction or your spouse or someone close to you, you need to see God's purpose in that because he's got a purpose. Now, he may afflict you just because he knows that's the best way to get to your spouse. He may afflict you just because that's the best way to get to your child or your parent or someone like that. But he's got his purpose for those things. Look in verse 92. How bad could this get? Verse 92. Unless thy law had been my delights, I should have then perished in mine affliction. Now, the reason I say God's got his purpose is because if his purpose of that affliction is to call you home, well, then that's all there is to it. You probably wouldn't be here much longer. But he usually is going to bring you out of that affliction It's because he's got a purpose for it. We need to seek the mind of God in all the circumstances of our life. The Bible says, whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth. Okay? That's just the way it is. Just like you, if you really love your children, you will correct them for their own good. Okay, the words of God, they're convicting. They're correcting. They're also very cleansing. Turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, this is written by King David shortly after he was confronted about his sin with Bathsheba. He's confronted by Nathan the prophet. And uh, this is what King David says in verse 2 of Psalm 51. He says, wash me throughly from mine iniquity. He said, and cleanse me from my sin. Look down in verse 10. He says, create in me a clean heart. He's crying out to God. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Now, King David knew that he was incapable of cleansing himself. He didn't have Jeremiah uh, that says, the heart's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? He didn't have Jeremiah. That was written hundreds of years after King David lived. But he did have the law. He had the first five books of the Bible. 
And he was aware of oftentimes in the Bible, especially in the book of Leviticus, over and over and over again, it talks about, like for example, a sin offering. If it's sodden in a brazen vessel, it's supposed to be washed under running water. But if it's sodden in an earthen vessel, that vessel is supposed to be broken. Uh, similarly, there, if a thing, uh, a vessel of any sort touches something dead, if it's a cloth vessel or a, a metal vessel or a wooden vessel, it's, again, it needs to be washed. But if it's an earthen vessel that touches a dead thing, it's to be broken. And the message King David got from those verses about the law is the fact that man is incapable of cleaning a physical earthen vessel. And spiritually, it's the same thing. We are incapable of cleaning our own vessel. But God's words will do that. And God can do it. He does it, and he does it primarily through these words. We talked about that when we were talking about uh, the sanctification process and partaking of his divine nature of virtue, how the words of God soften us and cleanse us. Jesus Christ himself said in John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto, according to thy truth. It's all through the scriptures. The words of God are will clean us up. Okay, five pieces. That's one, two, three, four, five. Now, I want to put these together, but they're way too soft. So I actually made five similar pieces earlier that have set up a little bit, and those are the ones I'm going to assemble. The words of God. They're convicting, they're correcting, they're cleansing. Uh, One more thing I want to say about cleansing. When we were talking about partaking of God's divine nature of virtue um, and and faith and temperance and knowledge and patience and godliness, brotherly kindness, charity, we're using that word partake, partake, partake. I don't know about you, that's not a word that's not part of my normal daily vocabulary. But it's a very simple word. It just means to take a part of something. And there's a wonderful example of that. The only piece I'm missing here is my little thumb rest. Um, Example of that in Luke, you don't have to turn there, Luke 8, it's about this woman. You may be familiar with her. She had this issue of blood for 12 years. Said she spent all her money on physicians, but just grew exceedingly worse. But she knew that if she could but touch the hem of the garment of Jesus Christ, that she would be made whole. And that's what she did. Got an itch here. <sighs> so, she finds out that Jesus Christ is coming by her way. And I just, again, I fizz in my mind's eye. I see this woman. She must have been really frail and weak. Twelve years of growing worse and worse. I see her crawling on her elbows and knees and maybe just reaching up between a couple people and, and touching the Lord Jesus Christ. And immediately, she was made whole. She was healed. The Bible says, Jesus immediately said, who touched me? And the disciples, uh, might have been Peter, said, uh, Lord, you know, you're being thronged about by all these people. What do you mean, who touched you? It's like they're all bumping into you. But the next thing Jesus said was this. He says, I perceive virtue is gone out of me. Now there's a picture, a picture of her partaking of Jesus Christ's virtue. God said, you and I could be partakers of God's divine nature, faith, virtue, knowledge, all the way up to charity. And the message, the picture is, is that it's all the work's already been done. We just need to, in faith, grab a part of it. It's done. It's there for the taking. 
Uh, you say, well, that, that lady literally touched Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, we can't do that. Oh, yeah, you can. You can touch him whenever you want through the words in this book. You know, I, I bet if I was to ask for a big amen by saying, Jesus Christ is and was the Son of God, amen? Would you all amen that? I hope you'd amen. The King James Bible is the words of God or the mind of God manifest in a book. Amen. It is. And if you realize you've got the mind of Christ in these words, wow, shame on us if we just let them sit without opening this book every day, at least for a few minutes. And it's for our benefit. It's our benefit to take advantage of the power of these words. They're convicting. They're correcting. Uh, they're cleansing. They're also very comforting. And when I say they're comforting, it's got to do with the precious promises in those books. The first thing the potter is going to do when he joins the spout to the body, and this is a step you do not want to miss, you have to cut a hole in here. Because it's very embarrassing when you sell a teapot to somebody and they get home and say, well, wait a second. There's no way for the tea to get out of there. So, two ways to cut the hole. First of all, I know that's not going to look very good. This is way too big, and that's kind of the way it's made. So I cut this down a little bit. I can use a knife or a wire, and I'll kind of show you what I'm doing here. I've got this shape on the wheel, but I want to remove just a wedge of it. Okay? And now, when I put that up there and I balance it with my handle, it's going to be just about right. But the hole. The potter has the option of cutting one big hole, which kind of weakens the vessel a little bit, or there's this little piece of brass tubing, really, that's sharpened on one end, and it punches a perfect hole in there, small holes. This leaves the, the body a lot stronger, and it also gives you the benefit of having kind of a strainer for the tea leaves. Now, if this was just a little harder, these little lugs of clay wouldn't be sticking the way they are but they can be pushed or pulled out of there. Anyway, you get the idea. Uh, now, the one thing I want to demonstrate, at least on this part of the teapot, is the correct way to join clay to clay. Very important. Uh, it, there's a technique called scoring and slipping. And the scoring is where you take a sharp tool, like, a tool like this needle tool, and you score or scratch the areas that are going to be joined. Okay? Now, this is very time-consuming. Keep in mind, if I was in my studio right now and making teapots, I wouldn't be making one teapot. I'd be making 10 or 12. If I was making mugs or pitchers, something that required a handle, required this scoring technique as well, I might be making 40 or 50 of those. So there's a whole lot of scoring and slipping to do. Well, fortunately for me, very early on in my professional career as a potter, I came across in one of our trade magazines about a tool someone had invented that assisted you in scoring actually increased your productivity by 400%. So for 20 bucks plus posters, I sent away and got one, and it has really helped me in my efforts. Yes. So that's the scoring. Matter of fact, you know, I was, I was so delighted with this that I sent away another 20 bucks and got a backup just, just in case. That's the scoring. What is the slip? The slip is the glue, or the, but it's actually it's just watered-down clay. And this splash pan up here and this throwing bucket, this water bucket I have, is just filled with this stuff. 
So I took a little out earlier, and this is what it's like. It's just like a soft, liquidy clay. And you join, you, after you've scored the two parts, you put some slip on there or slurry, and that's how you join these things together. Now, I know there's guys in here that have probably done woodwork, and just like joining wood to wood, if you glue it properly and clamp it, that joint, wherever you've glued those two things, that's stronger than the wood itself. You will never get that. You can try and rip two pieces of wood apart, and you will break the wood, but you will not get that seam apart. It's the same with this. You never have to worry if it's done properly about a handle falling off a mug. That doesn't mean you can't break the handle off, but it won't break where it's joined if it's joined properly. Now, the potter can spend a lot of time and actually blend these two areas together, and you can't even tell uh, where the spout ends and the body begins, or vice versa. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But I want to talk about the comforting aspects of these words. Uh, the precious promises, you know, we talked about some of those the other day, but how about Romans uh, 8.38? I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, I can think of three verses probably just in the fourth chapter of the book of Philippians that are incredibly precious promises. One of them talks about, uh, be careful for nothing but everything with prayer and thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which paths all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And then there's another one that says, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. And then what I mentioned before, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Those three verses are just in one small chapter of the book of Philippians. How about, uh, do you know God's phone number? God's got a phone number. It's Jeremiah 33.3. It says, call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. You got a God that wants you to call upon him and when you do, He's going to deliver you, and you'll glorify him, and he'll show you some things that you've never seen before. Uh, the words of God, they're convicting, they're correcting, they're cleansing, uh, they're comforting. i got six more points here. They're controlling, they're critiquing, they're confirming. They are sometimes clothing, confounding, and conquering. Now that's ten powerful aspects of God's words just using the letter C. And I dare say those words are so special that you could take the other 25 letters of our alphabet and come up with it on average 10 more powerful effects of those words. That's just how special they are. I'm not going to slip and score this one. Truth be told, when, potter, when the clay is really soft, you can avoid the whole slipping and scoring thing. But that's just inside information, okay? Don't tell that. Turn to Ephesians. We're going to start to talk about this teapot. Paul is uh, writing to believers here in, in Ephesians chapter 4, and he is uh, 
He's going to be focusing on the theme of unity to some extent, and that's what I want to talk about. Um, Let me get my Bible opened here. So Ephesians chapter 4, has everyone got their Bible open to Ephesians chapter 4? There is a, this first verse, by all means, you all need to see this. Ephesians 4.1 I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Now, one of the emphases tonight is the importance of God's words. And that importance goes right down to the individual letters. So do you see that word vocation? Look very closely. The second letter in that word is not the letter A. All right? You have not been called to a vacation. Now, maybe you got a different version, and that is an A. I don't know. I think Joel Osteen's Bible has A in there. How do we know? We talked about the word marred. How do we know what God's words means when, you know, marred is in there five times, and one of those times, especially the first mention, told us exactly what it was. What about a word like vocation? It's the only time it's in the Bible. Oh, what a great Bible. It gives you the definition right after the word. Vocation, wherewith ye are called. Your vocation, my vocation, is our calling. And that's a whole lot more important to God than your occupation. Now, your occupation may occupy a whole lot of your time, but there's a good chance, if it does, that your vocation is wrapped up in your occupation, at least for right now. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. How? Verse 2. With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Look down in verse 8, the last five words, and gave gifts unto men. And now you're going to have to take my word for this if you're not familiar with these verses. When he's talking about the gifts he gave unto men, he's not talking about the gifts of becoming one of those things. He tells you what the gifts are in verse 11. He says he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. But what he is not saying is that the gifts are to be one of those things. Paul is talking about, and he's talking to the church of Ephesus, but these words are talking to us right now in Orville, Ohio, and they're saying that you, sitting in this room, have been given a gift. And it's the gift of a pastor-teacher. And my question to you is, what are you doing with the gift? You say, well, gee, I'm not quite sure what you're talking about. Well, let me ask you this. If you're in church on a Wednesday night, there's probably a good chance that that you're saved and you're a child of God and you you might even be surrendered and wanting to do something for the Lord. I dare say there's a good chance that you've received that other gift, the gift of eternal life, the gift of God. What are you doing with that gift? Have you, you've received it, but have you actually taken the bow off and the pretty paper and have you opened it up and are you using the gift? Because if you are, if you are using the gift of salvation, you should be experiencing on an ongoing basis the love of Christ that passeth all knowledge. It's such a special love that you and I have the potential to experience that it is really 
beyond our knowledge how special and wonderful it is. We should be experiencing regularly the peace of God that passes all understanding. Again, it's, it's so magnanimous, so restful, so peaceful, it's beyond our finite understanding. And then two, we should be experiencing on a regular basis joy unspeakable. Not because we shouldn't speak about it, but because we don't have the vocabulary that really would do it justice. We don't. That's how wonderful it is. So if you are using that gift, you should be experiencing unspeakable love, unspeakable peace, unspeakable joy. And that's why the Apostle Paul refers to Jesus Christ and what he's done for you and me as he refers to him as the unspeakable gift. He really is. But what about this gift of a pastor-teacher? You've got a man here. By the way, a pastor-teacher is not an occupation. It's a vocation. It's a calling. And God has ordained that this church, Joy Baptist Church in Orville, in the year 2014, has Pastor Wilcox as your pastor-teacher. He is your umbrella. He is your first line of defense. My question is, how much time do you spend praying for this man and his family? Because I will tell you this, every two minutes you spend praying for them is like five minutes praying for yourself. That's how important it is. He's your first line of defense. You would do well to spend a lot of time praying for him. The enemy would like nothing more than to get at you through him. By the way, how do you think God wants to speak to you when you come to church on Sunday morning, Wednesday night, he speaks to you through this man who has spent his week trying to get a hold of the voice of God. And that's what a pastor teacher does. He's praying for you. He's praying for this church. He's praying for God to give him the words that God wants him to say to you. That's why you need to be praying for him and his family, as well as the other leadership in this church. Um, are you here... Most of the time when the doors are open, I hope so. You know, I'm probably preaching the choir on a Wednesday night, and this is a wonderful turnout. It really is. It's nice to see so many folks out. You know, some churches, boy, it's the worship service, and that Wednesday night, that Sunday night, that's like a couple people. And I'm talking in much bigger churches than this because people just, they don't see the need for hearing from God more than once a week, if that. And I was one of those Christians, believe me, for 30 years, if I was saved, I'd go to church once in a while and just check the box. That's what I did. And that made me feel good. Like I did my thing. Now don't bother me. I don't want to open that book. I don't want to talk about God. I don't want to know anything else about Wednesday night, Sunday school, or Sunday night. I went to church this week. Don't let that be you. When your pastor happens to preach on the very sin that's bothering the guy sitting next to you. And he gets up and walks out the door, he or she, and they start mumbling and complaining about the pastor and his message. Do you say, yeah, 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 or do you say, hold it. That's my pastor you're talking about. Are you taking advantage of the opportunities of ministry that go on through this church? Now, I, I haven't had a chance to talk. I don't know exactly what things may or may not. I know you've got opportunities for discipleship, opportunities for soul winning. 
I don't know if there's prison ministry, nursing home ministry, you know, but whatever it may be, you know, maybe there's a ministry that God's laying on your heart that's not already ongoing in this church. Well, this is the man that can help you do it. He can help you get it started. He can show you how to get it started. He will probably help you start it. I hope that you don't think that your pastor's main job is to invite people to church. Do you expect this man to grow your church? I hope not. That's really not his job. His job is to feed the sheep. And if he's feeding you, which I know he is, then you should be convicted yourselves about witnessing to your coworkers and neighbors and people you encounter at the grocery store. You have relationships. You know, he's one person, and there's at least you know, another 30 in this room almost. And you, so you've got 30 times the opportunities that he has. And that's how a church has grown. It's by you inviting friends. And just because you invited a friend and they said no, and it kind of hurt your feelings, so what? Get over it. If you did it for the Lord, just, just invite him again another month or two months later. So what if you get rejected? It's not about you. And you've got a great church here. People don't know what they're missing. Unless they, and all they've got to do is probably come here one time. And they might get excited about coming back here. I would. This is the kind of church people do want to join, but we need to, you all, not your pastor. I mean, I know he's doing it anyway, but you all have those opportunities to invite people to church. Just invite them. Invite them to your cookouts. Invite them to hear someone sing or whatever it may be. I know you guys, I understand you have a monthly dinner on the grounds or something like that. That's a wonderful thing. I hope you get community out to something like that just to introduce them to your church family. I hope it doesn't become just a thing for y'all, just a bubble. And that's, that's a wonderful thing for you to knit together as a family. That's, that's a blessing. But also a wonderful time to reach out to the community. And there, that's the key. You need to reach out to the community. That is our great commission. That's one of the number one ways that we can bring him pleasure and fulfill that great commission. By just, it's not us getting the results, it's just being faithful to encourage others to come. It's not about getting them here, it's about asking them. That's all it is. Um, How are we to perform this ministry? Look down in verse 12, or why. It's for the perfecting of the saints, that's you and I for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That verse 12, that's like a three-step program right there. You see, as you begin to get out and step out in faith, it will perfect you, that you will grow as the Christian, the vessel that God wants you to be, so that when you do the work of the ministry, you can eventually be edifying the entire body of Christ. Verse 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Skip down to verse 16, speaking of Christ. From whom the whole body, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body. Okay, a very, very long sentence here. I skipped half of it. 
Paul is saying, if you will come together, fitly joined and compacted, it maketh great increase of the body. You saw me take five pieces and assemble them. So, what's more special, this or that? You know, what are you going to do with this? I, I don't know. I mean, this is, could be a, a nice little funnel if you run out of gas on the way home. Just, uh, and the reason, by the way, that I don't, you know, even if you're really careful, you cannot, no matter how careful you are, as soon as you try to apply a spout to a very soft piece of clay, you can probably see this, the top is no longer round. It gets out of round right away. That's why you wait for these things to set up. Whoops. And uh, it just gets worse. So I like to put these together anyway, just to show you why I did what I did. You know, the world has a saying, and that is that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And according to this verse, that's true, you know? Fitly joined together, compacted, maketh, oops, great increase of the body. Now, this, is still, this vessel is not marred, it's just blemished. It's still usable, except I didn't put the hole then, did I? I didn't cut the hole. So, not functional, but you could use it as something, a doorstop. Look at God wants you to come together, fitly joined and compacted. It maketh great increase of the body. Uh, what God is saying is that... Uh, not only if you embrace the sanctification process do you become that unique, special vessel that God wants you to be, but if enough of you come together in that sanctification process, you form corporately another vessel, like one of these, hopefully this one, maybe. But whether it's this one or that one, or I've got one up here that's finished. And is that what God says when he looks at you? Ooh. Hopefully. Or is it, <laughs> It really doesn't matter. Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? You know? I don't want you to stand before one God, God one day and kind of be a what-if Christian. You know? What if I had gone to visitation that night the church planned it. What if I had gone to Sunday school when I was supposed to? What, what if? What if I had gone to church? What if I had handed that person a gospel tract? What if I had prayed for my pastor last week? What if I had started tithing before it was ever lasting too late? You know, there's examples in the Bible. Think about Think about Moses, what if he had not smitten the rock but spoke to it? He would have got to enter the promised land. Uh, what if uh, King David hadn't set out that one battle and found himself on the rooftop looking over at Bathsheba? What if King Agrippa had been persuaded? He wouldn't be in hell right now. Folks, you and I should... Praise God for his mercy, the fact that you're still breathing and that from this point forward, you and I have opportunities to do something for him. Think about that. 
Let's look at one more verse. Turn to John, 2 John. Back of your Bible, 2 John. You know, I've told people, they oftentimes ask me what a teapot like this, a finished one, would sell for. And of course, it, a lot of it depends on the, if it's sitting in a garage sale or a flea market or if it's in a nice gallery that it sells handmade stuff. But in a pottery shop or a gallery, a nice teapot like this might sell for $150. And a lot of people collect teapots. And you know this teapot right here? That's art. <laughs> that would sell for about $200. And I'm not just saying that. I'm, that's the truth. And if you, want, if you don't like that side of it, you can just turn it around and like that side. See, people that collect teapots, they got this kind and this kind. They don't have one of those. They got to have that for their collection. So they're willing to pay for it. I wish I would have thought of that when I had a pottery studio. I never thought of that until I started doing this message. Too late. Too little, too late. Second John. And we're going to read this carefully. Second John. Right next to 1 John. Verse 8. Look to yourselves, that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Now, the first dozen times I read this, I thought it said, look to yourselves, that you lose not those things which you have wrought, but that you receive a full reward. But that's not what it says. It says, look to yourselves, that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Look up here. If your little part of responsibility at Joy Baptist Church is to be this little piece of clay that makes this tip just a certain amount of sharpness, you know what happens? Uh, When you pour, if it's done just right, and you've done your job, and you're there, then when I pour tea out of that, and I set the teapot back down, that last drip, instead of going down the outside, it's cut in such a way it goes down the inside. And you never get that little drip down the outside. Now, if you're missing, if you're the piece that's responsible for that, and you're not there, then that vessel isn't going to be all it could be. I mean, what if your your part of this corporate vessel was this little knob that helps you hold the lid when you take it off? Or part of the handle. You know, part of that handle's missing, that's not going to be very strong. So, folks... I'm not trying to really guilt you, but think about it. Look to yourselves that the rest of this group doesn't lose the reward which they've wrought. Don't be that that one missing piece. Now, I know full well you cannot control that person sitting next to you, in front of you, or behind you. I don't care if you're married to them. I don't care if you gave them birth. Whatever. You can't really control them. If you're uh, in a position where you can make sure your spouse or your child or, or whoever has some time to have that fellowship with the Lord that they need, then that's maybe your responsibility. But as far as them taking advantage of that time and getting close to the Lord and seeking his face and his will in their lives, that's totally up to them. But I will tell you, there's a verse in James 3, 5 that says, Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And if you can be that bright and shining light you will influence not just that person sitting next to you, in front of you, behind you. You'll influence people in your community, people you run across in your workplace, people at the grocery store, the post office, the bank, the gas station, whatever. 
they will see something in you, and when the time is right, they might ask you for some advice or some help or some comfort. And that's when you can tell them about Christ, tell them about this church, tell them about the precious promises in this book. I would encourage you to consider what it is God could do through each of you. If God could send the sun across the sky, if he could paint the clouds that drift on by, if he could hang the stars in the sky, what could he do through you? If he can send a storm through space, can dot with trees the mountain's face, if he the sparrow's way can trace, what could he do through you? If he can do such little things as count our hairs or birds that sing, control the universe that swings, that's a little thing for him. What could he do through you? If you and you, and you would just yield your body of clay to be shaped by the Lord in his perfect way, you are sure to bring glory to him on that day. I'm talking about the judgment seat of Christ. So I beg you, allow God to work through you. Amen? Heavenly Father, Lord, we sure do thank you for your long-suffering and patience with us. Thank you, Lord, for the many souls that have lived before us that have uh, been used by you to preserve these perfect, inspired words that we hold in our hand, Lord. Help us to not take them for granted. Lord, I ask for a special touch of grace on this part of the local body of Christ at Joy Baptist Church, Lord, that you would bring them together in a unified fashion, each member doing the thing that you created them to do, Lord, that they might come together in a special way, fitly joined and compacted, making great increase of the body, bringing great pleasure to their Savior. Lord, we ask it all for your sake and for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor?